And Marco sadly has to run to catch a train to Brussels at 16 So our plan is to do the two papers and do some questions. And rather than breaking for questions, meeting up the two, I mean, breaking for drinks, meeting up the two papers as we often do, we'll go through without a drink until 16.30. Sorry. And then <laughs> disappear, and then we can have a chat and see how things continue. Otherwise, people can, don't get a chance to uh, ask Marco any questions before he disappears off to his conference in Antwerp tomorrow. So, um, today's, uh, the focus of today's discussion is the unnameable, which I think would be an interesting challenge for um, thinking about how um, texts represent minds and then maybe their unrepresentability. Um, and both um, Simon and Marco are people who've done um, work on this crossover between the um, study of fiction and uh, the interest in uh, the version of cognitive sciences. Um, Simon has just has completed a um, monograph on um, psychology and the minds that's represented in French fiction, some of which has already been um, uh, appeared in print in the form of, for instance, an article on post-psychoanalytic proofs appeared in the Modern Languages Corporate this year. And um, Marco has, uh, is currently completing a monograph on Beckett and the cognitive method. So um, I'm looking forward to hear what they're going to say at about the unnameable. I think we'll, so we'll do here the two papers, and there'll be a, a, like a short moment after Simon's paper to have like questions of clarification, but not questions of substance. So if there's something that's puzzling you, then obviously you can ask, but it, that won't happen. Uh, and then we'll go to Marcus' paper. Anyway, so thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm going first because I'm, I'm more the, the generalist of the pair of us, uh, that um, uh, the representation of consciousness in uh, 20th century French literature is very much my thing. Although uh, among uh, the, the studies I've done there, Beckett, to be honest, doesn't particularly uh, figure very much. Um, he's much more um, uh, Marco's specialism. So... Um, I think he's a very good choice for this because obviously he counts as a, as a one-man comparative literature course all by himself. Um, but I was a little apprehensive about discussing the unnameable as a novel where I'm not entirely sure what it means and what it's about. But I was very reassured once I got into it and started exploring the secondary literature and discovered that nobody else does either. So what I want to do uh, today is, uh, first of all, the first half, I want to talk uh, in, a, in general terms, I want to sketch in a method about an approach to the analysis of consciousness um, in literature and the idea of other minds in literature. And then um, after that, I want to turn to Beckett and to this passage in particular from uh, The Unnameable as a way of demonstrating that approach. And where we're heading um, uh, in about 20 minutes' time, just to... to uh, make sure I don't keep you in suspense, is an advocacy of pluralism in an approach, uh, in the approach to um, studying the mind in literature, and then attempt to read out an implicit Beckettian theory of mind from the text that you could then compare with cognitive, phenomenological, or Freudian models. And I'm going to use this passage in particular to look at the idea that who I am is not the private and exclusive property of the self, but it's something that can be inferred and communicated to me by outside observers. As well as the idea that the self is outside consciousness and it's the object of my inward gaze in a similar way that other people are the object of my outward gaze. And I'm hoping that's gonna link quite nicely into the topics of the Conrad discussion from last time around. 
So, um, I've been looking at how 20th century European writers have tried to represent the workings of consciousness and the unconscious mind in their novels. And I'm exploring the literary techniques that are in use, um, from the surrealist metaphor to stream of consciousness, the ideas they've absorbed from science, religion, philosophy, and psychoanalysis. And I'm trying to trace across the century, uh, Beckett century, the rise and wane of Freudian influence on literature, the gradual decline of religious understandings of consciousness, the mid-century flurry of interest in the existentialist mind, and cognitive and neo-Darwinian ideas um, coming uh, into vogue at the dawn of the 21st. So what I'm actually doing is looking at uh, uh, these six writers uh, from French literature. And what I'm trying to do is to take I guess the opposite approach from the conventional practice of beginning with a preconceived idea of how the mind works and using that to perform a psychoanalytic reading or a cognitivist reading of the text concerned. What I'm trying to do is to um, begin with the text themselves, attempt to extrapolate from the text an implicit theory of mind more or less coherent, more or less uh, clearly expressed from the writer themselves, and then see how that reflects back or, um, onto the dominant ideas of the period to see where the parallels are and where the conflicts arise. Um, it started, in fact, my inspiration, I think, was probably impatience uh, with Freud and psychoanalysis, um, impatient with the way in the arts you can, you can use psychoanalysis to read with or against the grain as the mood takes you that you can see a stronger version as being a stronger version to something or as a repressed desire for something. Um, how you can move from image to word to another image and build castles of interpretation on quite shaky foundations. Uh, on Proust, for example, uh, where the psychoanalysts have had a field day, um, uh, Serge Dubrovsky reckons that the Madeleine uh, scene shows the author's repressed desire to consume and defecate his own mother, um, and the fact that it is a petite Madeleine initials PM, MP backwards shows that it's Proust's own desire, whereas Julia Kristeva uh, reckons that uh, there's a reference hidden within it to a gay sexual practice of eating bread that has been soaked in urine. So it's that kind of thing that really started to make me, make me question um, psychoanalytic approaches. And so I really welcome the current moment where there's a, a chance for a real pluralism in approaches to understanding consciousness in literature, that as the shadow of Freud recedes a little bit, then other approaches uh, come to the fore. And what I'd like to advocate is that we don't simply replace the psychoanalytic grid with a new one from cognitive science and from uh, uh, evolutionary science, but that we, uh, for the moment, uh, we maintain this sense of openness to different ideas, particularly when we're talking about fictional minds, which are not necessarily uh, representative of minds in the real world. So, uh, to illustrate. Um, one last illustration before I get to Beckett. Uh, here's two little um, uh, extracts from novels from the 1930s. Uh, to demonstrate a different phenomenology of perception between these two novels. Firstly, here's the Catholic writer and Nobel Prize winner François Mauriac, uh, showing a harmony between consciousness and the physical environment in that both are the products of God's creation. And in my dodgy translation from the French, one day on the Lys Valley Road, we had got down from the carriage, the stream ran by, I crushed fennel between my fingers, night was gathering on the lower slopes, but patches of sunlight lingered on the mountain peaks. I suddenly had the acute feeling, the almost physical certainty, that there was another world, a reality of which we knew only the shadow. 
Um, so there we saw a purposeful, loving, protective world, and we could be aware of that protectiveness and reciprocate that love if our perceptions were properly attuned to them. Contrast that with this rather more famous uh, passage. Sorry, the, the top of it has disappeared. Um, uh, it's the setting of Bouville Park uh, in Sartre's La Nausée, and he says, existence had suddenly unveiled itself it had lost its harmless appearance as an abstract category. It was the very stuff of things. The root was steeped in existence, or rather the root, the park gates, the bench, the sparse grass on the lawn, all that had vanished. The diversity of things, their individuality was only an appearance a veneer. The veneer had melted, leaving soft, monstrous masses in disorder, naked with a frightening, obscene nakedness. And so what you've got in this text is, again, a perception of the natural world, but here a reality being perceived without order and meaning, alien and hostile to the mind's desire to comprehend and categorise, and our desire to divide matter into fixed entities with definable attributes. And this divorce between mind and reality is the consequence of an absence of a creator's intentions behind the natural world. So what we saw in the Catholic text was a communion of minds through nature. The human mind becomes aware of the presence of a divine mind, and the similarities between the two minds make the world familiar and comprehensible. And of course, we can see how the two writers have each loaded the dice to bolster their view of mind and world. Leafy sunshine on the riverbank in the Catholic novel, demonstrating the existence of a divine mind like ours. Patchy grass in the municipal park, proving the opposite. Okay, that's all the non-Beckett stuff. So, um, through analyses and comparisons like this, I want to argue for an understanding of the novel as a meeting place for minds, that you have the creative author's mind and the interpreting reader's mind coming together within a third virtual consciousness, which is one created within the text. And within this idea, I want to emphasize the point that this third consciousness, the virtual consciousness of the text, is a fictional mind. Um, and uh, possible worlds theory, which is a little bit in vogue at the moment, is quite handy at this point. Uh, the idea that, that uh, a text creates a possible world, it creates its own universe, within which the writer, in texts which are talking about, um, uh, which asserts the fact that they're talking about human nature, um, they claim to be compatible with psychology and with neurology as it was understood at the time of writing, not necessarily, of course, as it will be understood in the future. But beyond that assertion, they've got a certain license to set the rules. So in real life, it's an open question as to whether, say, male and female minds are different or the same at a pre-conscious level, or whether the mind's unspoken thoughts can be perceived by an, by an omniscient deity. You might have one novel where consciousness supervenes on electrochemical activity in the neurons of the brain. You might have another where it's the property of an immaterial soul surviving the death of the body. Um, and my point is to respect that within the novels and to say that within your, whatever I believe and perhaps whatever modern science has now proved, uh, within your possible world that you've created, that may be true. And you have the prerogative as a writer to assert that as true. And my purpose is to try and chase, uh, to trace these changing literary universes and these clashes between incompatible literary universes, and in doing so, just to try to draw up a cultural history of consciousness. So what theory of mind, after that preamble, can we glean from the unnameable? Well, 
it's a harder question to answer for Beckett and his trilogy than it is for most works, since the trilogy, for those of you who know it, present us with a self-conscious collage of ideas on the mind, drawn from a vast range of sources, classical, early modern, modern philosophy, along with other places like Freudian psychoanalysis and evolutionary theory, while at the same time, as it presents those ideas, consistently undermining them with ironic parody and with corrosive doubt. So if you're not familiar with The Unnameable, I'm going to offer a brief sketch of it and the two novels that precede it, although again, summarising Beckett is not a very straightforward endeavour. Uh, the first of the trilogy, Malloy, um, has the first half of the novel recounting how the decrepit, destitute protagonist heads off on his bike to visit his mother, wanders aimlessly, is arrested for lewdness, runs over a dog, attacks a man in the woods and various other um, adventures. In the second half, a new character, Malone, is commissioned to find Malloy and sets off initially with his downtrodden son in tow. And this narrative follows Malone's fruitless wandering and unexplained physical decline, which along with other uncanny parallels, leave him by the end uncannily resembling Malloy to the point where it may appear that one is the creation of the other. Then in the middle volume, uh, Malone meurt, Malone dies, the narrator lies alone in a single room. He talks about his pencil stub and the view from his window as death approaches him. And he passes the time narrating the story of a boy, originally called Sapo, later renamed Macman as an adult, who grows, declines, and winds up in an institution similar to the narrator's own. And uh, Malone mentions Malloy and Moran in his narration, although it's unclear whether they're creations of his imagination. And it ends with a breakdown of discourse into fragments, words, and silence. Then the third volume, uh, L'Innommable, uh, written in, and published in French first, then uh, uh, translated by Beckett into English after. In this volume, we have a voice speaking in the first person while questioning and sometimes denying that there is a self behind this voice. In the opening lines, he says, it says, I say I, unbelieving. Uh, the Unnameable sees Moran and other characters from the previous volumes in this netherworld or mental space which is around it, and it gives the implication that they are its creations. It also tells the story of one Mahud, Mahud uh, later renamed Worm, who we first see limping with agonising slowness in concentric circles towards his dying family, and then living in a pot outside a restaurant with only his head emerging. Um, one critic, J.D. O'Hara, takes inspiration from the fact that the manuscript for the novel is not entitled L'Innommable, but Mahoud, and argues that the narrator is Mahoud, um, a proposition that actually in the story the voice itself considers and claims that other people have imposed on it. And O'Hara makes the, the precise point, the precise suggestion that the unnameable is an element within Mahoud, that Mahoud is a person, and uh, the unnameable is a stream of thought shorn of the physical body, of perceptions, of memories, and a stable set of self, shorn away uh, of everything required for a human identity that might be worth a name. So in endless run-on sentences, the unnameable tells its stories, struggles for awareness of environment, a physical body, and inner identity, but it's unable to manage more than hearsay, shadows, and doubt for any of these. The monologue stumbles forward until it finally breaks off at the line you must go on, I can't go on, I'll go on, and then doesn't. So, um, what kind of mind uh, are we being presented with here, and in these avatars um, and creations of the unnameable that may be Malloy, Malone, and company of the earlier ones? Well, 
Um, Lance Butler and Robin Davis have suggested uh, the uh, the pluralism of Beckett in um, in literary criticism. They have said that depending on which book about Beckett you read, you are going to encounter Beckett the Cartesian, Beckett the Existentialist, Beckett the Nihilist, Beckett the Mystic, Beckett the Dramatist of the Absurd, and Beckett the Explorer of the Limitations of Language. There were a few others in there as well which I, I cut out, but even, even talking about the psychological Beckett, Beckett's approach to the mind, there are uh, these numerous and not entirely compatible uh, Beckett's that have been um, that have been drawn out of his work. So here's a lightning run uh, through some of the theories of mind that the text toys with and invites us, perhaps, as readers, to impose on its narrators. Uh, we have Cartesian consciousness. The unnameable says, I may therefore legitimately suppose that the one-armed, one-legged wayfarer of a moment ago and the wedge-headed trunk in which I am now marooned are simply two phases of the same carnal envelope, the soul being notoriously immune from deterioration and dismemberment. So the carnal envelopes he refers to are these named characters like Worm and Mahud, um, and he's differentiating from that the idea of his self as being an immaterial soul, which uh, Descartes reckoned uh, could neither be destroyed nor divided. Uh, we also see Cartesian doubt turning up in the trilogy in an earlier volume, as Malone lies in bed in his room and talks about the noises he can hear, and says, the noises that I say rise up from below, the steps that I say come climbing towards me, do they really do so? I have no proof that they do. To conclude from this that I am prey to hallucinations, pure and simple, is however a step I hesitate to take. So both of them sort of throw out there the possibility of a Cartesian view of the world, uh, that the self might be an immortal soul, that uh, perceptions might be an illusion, but do so in a very negative way, which undermines uh, the assertions as soon as they are making them. And in fact, Malone then goes on a sentence or two later to say that his horse sense um, helps him conclude that there really are people coming up and down the stairs outside. Um, connected to Cartesian doubt is embodiment, the question of uh, are we our bodies, are we anything more than our thoughts? And again, um, there are several references to this in the trilogy, um, all of which seem to undermine themselves as soon as they're put out there. Malone says, sometimes it seems to me I am in a head and that these eight, no six, these six planes that enclose me are of solid bone, but thence to conclude that the head is mine, no, never. Uh, the unnameable says, it's a head, I'm in a head, what an illumination, pissed on out of hand, which I think suggests that the illumination itself has been extinguished. Um, and later on says, no need of a head, impossible to stop them, impossible to stop, I'm in words, made of words, others' words. So uh, they're not only denying uh, the embodiment of his existence, but also denying uh, that really that he exists at all, that he's anything more than a construct of language. Kant, um, the unnameable says, what puzzles me is the thought of being indebted for this information to persons with whom I can, I can never have been in contact. Can it be innate knowledge like that of good and evil? This seems improbable to me. Innate knowledge of my mother, for example, is that conceivable, not for me. So what he's presenting here is not really an assertion of uh, Kantian philosophy, but a presentation or an allusion to the debate between Kant and empiricism, the idea that there's nothing in our heads that hasn't come in through our senses. And he seems, in passing, to accept the idea of innate knowledge of good and evil there, but as soon as he starts to dwell on anything, he does so only to dismiss it, undermine it, question it. Uh, more recent philosophy is in there too, Bergson, 
Um, this is from Malone Dies. He sat and lay down at the least pretext and only rose again when the élan vital, or struggle for life, began to prod him in the arse again. Uh, élan vital being Bergson's idea of a sort of essence of life uh, which is possessed by every, um, every living being. Um, and outside philosophy, we have Freud. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of Freud that I could have chosen. I just picked this one. Um, if ever I'm reduced to looking for a meaning in my life, you never can tell. It's in that old mess I'll stick my nose to begin with, the mess of that poor old uniparous, meaning one child at a time, whore, and myself the last of my foul brood. Uh, that's one of his early references to his mother. She turns up again um, a few pages later when he's saying that he can't distinguish between the various women he slept with. Their faces mingle with each other's, and then he inevitably says, and they also end up mingling with my mother's face. So there's all, there's all sorts of Freud scattered through the, um, uh, through the trilogy. But again, to, in, in a way which makes it seem more like a parody than, than a, a serious... Um, uh, consideration of the truth of, of Freud's theories. And to bring us up to date, uh, there is reference to Darwinian theory in um, uh, Beckett as well. Again, there were, there were a, a whole bunch I could have put in, so I've just taken two. The unnameable set talks of his longing to have floundered, however briefly, however feebly, in the great life torrent streaming from the earliest protozoa to the very latest humans. Um, and later says, pupil Mahud, repeat after me, man is a higher mammal. I couldn't, always talking about mammals in this menagerie. So the, the first of those two I put in because it seems like a quite positive reference to Darwin as if it's accepted. The second one I put in because, first of all, it seems like it's, um, uh, it's denying the suggestion that, that, uh, um, that man is part of the animal kingdom. But then in the very next sentence, it sort of undermines that denial um, that he is living in a menagerie and therefore is an animal among animals. And last of all... Um, uh, we are in the mid-20th century here, so we're in an era before cognitive neuroscience really starts to make its presence felt in, the, um, uh, in, in literary fiction. But there is uh, at least a foreshadowing, I would say, of, uh, of um, common approaches uh, to consciousness that have come out of cognitive science in this. Uh, sorry, this is a bit of a lengthy quotation. Um, Malloy says, Every time I say, I said this or I said that, or speak of a voice saying far away inside me, Malloy, and then a fine phrase, more or less clear and simple, I'm merely complying with a convention that demands you either lie or hold your peace. For what really happened was quite different. In reality, I said nothing at all, but I heard a murmur, something gone wrong with the silence. And then sometimes there arose within me confusedly a kind of consciousness which I expressed by saying, I said, etc., or which I expressed without sinking to the level of a ratio rector, but by means of other figures quite as deceitful as, for example, it seems to me that, for it seemed to me nothing at all, but simply somewhere something had changed so that I too had to change or the world too had to change in order for nothing to be changed. So the idea that, um, by, that by rendering what's going on at the deepest levels of consciousness in language, you are thereby falsifying them and that there is a pre-conscious, uh, sorry, a pre-linguistic um, level of language where even the, the sort of conventional labels we put on our impressions no longer fit seems to be being expressed here. So what we have in Beckett, uh, in The Unnameable and in uh, its, uh, its prequels, um, is um, a, a run through the ideas on the nature of consciousness and the self that have been proposed 
um, since classical times. But what we have is a simultaneous undermining of all of these ideas such that we are never allowed to settle on something as um, a sort of um, a, a base um, assertion on which we can then build a broader theory because everything that's being proposed to us uh, is being simultaneously undermined and presented uh, as, uh, as semi-parodic. All of these um, things I've just run through might be taken as invitations to critics to impose an interpretive, interpretive grid, a Freudian reading, a Darwinian reading, justifying the interpretation of the, the wider text by this moment of acknowledged influence. But are these references clues or are they teases? Um, they're, they're dipping into Western civilization's long meditation on the nature of consciousness, only to mock, doubt, and undermine. Only in the negativity of this last one, um, in the emphasis on the absence of linguistic formulation, on the absence of any feelings that can bear labels, or even a self on which experience can leave an imprint, is there perhaps an intimation right in the first volume of where the trilogy is finally heading. The unnameable, the last volume, as O'Hara suggests, might be seen as the non-dimensional inner part of a being, of a self, an individual fictional character whose external part is named Mahud. So, which finally brings me back to the extract uh, with which I began, uh, the Tell Me Who I Am extract from Unnameable. So, um, this uh, final, uh, well, not final, this, in, the, in, the, in the latter pages of the novel, um, this uh, presentation of who he thinks he is uh, certainly seems to follow from Malloy's intimation of this pre-linguistic sub-identity core of consciousness. But now, though, for one of the very few times in the trilogy, we're seeing such an idea expressed not in negativity, but through a positive idea on the narrator's mentality. He's suggesting what he is and what his mind does rather than just what he isn't and what it doesn't. So he says, um, and you've got uh, everything but the, the top line, um, they say I feel something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I feel. Tell me what I feel and I'll tell you who I am. They'll tell me who I am. I won't understand, but the thing will be said. They'll have said who I am and I'll have heard. Without an ear, I'll have heard. And I'll have said it without a mouth. I'll have said it. I'll have said it inside me then in the same breath outside me. Perhaps that's what I feel, and this is one of his rare um, sort of insights into, into the possible nature of himself. Perhaps that's what I feel, an outside and an inside, and me in the middle. Perhaps that's what I am, the thing that divides the world in two. On the one side, the outside, on the other, the inside, that can be as thin as foil. I'm neither one side nor the other. I'm in the middle, I'm the partition. I have two surfaces and no thickness. Perhaps that's what I feel, myself vibrating. I'm the tympanum. On the one hand, the mind. On the other, the world. I don't belong to either. Tympanum, by the way, as you probably know, is the, um, uh, the specialist term, the medical anatomical term for the eardrum. Um, as, as I said, he wrote this in French first and then translated it. The, uh, the general normal word for an eardrum in French is le, tym le tympan, and he's basically taken the cognate um, in translating it uh, and gone for the anatomical term rather than the, um, the normal word eardrum. I don't know if he did that deliberately or whether it's just uh, as he was translating tympan, suggested tympanum, and he did it. But um, uh, loath as I am to criticise Beckett, if I'd been translating it, I would have said eardrum. Um, So this seems 
one of the few areas where the voice gets close to self-knowledge, where at least he gets as far as making a favoured hypothesis about the nature of existence, which is neither undermined as he's saying it by irony, nor is it subsequently renounced later in the text, as much else that, that is said is. Um, for Northrop Fry, when he was uh, looking at this, uh, he sees this as being down below the level of the self, below consciousness itself. And he says, in the unnameable, we come as near to the core of the onion as it's possible to come, and discover, of course, that there is no core, no undividable unit of continuous personality. And he, he describes the way that, uh, um, that the, the novel and this passage is narrated as being a stream of consciousness from which consciousness is somehow absent. Um, I'd, ra I'd rather take issue with the idea of a stream of consciousness without consciousness. I'm not entirely sure what that would be. But the idea of a stream of consciousness without self seems to me a rather more plausible way to look at it. And if we're heading in that direction, uh, then we're immediately bringing up echoes of Sartre and the transcendent ego. So Sartre uh, was read by Beckett, although Beckett complained that he wasn't a philosopher, that Beckett wasn't a philosopher, and that Sartre's language was too philosophical for me. Um, but uh, there does seem to me to be some uh, echoes of the, the Sartrean position in uh, the, uh, um, the nature of the unnameable. Sartre's big idea in the essay, The Transcendence of the Ego, is that the ego, the self, is outside consciousness. It's an object of our attention uh, in the manner of objects we perceive in the world outside. He says, the cogito affirms too much. The sure and certain content of the pseudo-cogito, the one he wants to present, is not, I am conscious of this chair, but there is consciousness of this chair. And Jean-Marc Mouilly, talking about Sartre, has suggested that this displacement of the ego from the centre of the mind is one of the founding points of this radical deconstruction of the subject, which is going to accompany a lot of French thought and literature on human nature through the rest of the 20th century, including Foucault and Jacques Derrida, and very possibly Beckett too. In essence, uh, what he's saying is that the self is another mind, that it's qualitatively similar to the minds of other people, on which we may focus attention, infer truths, and on which we may indeed be mistaken, as Sartre demonstrates with the neat question, am I lazy? Um, a psychological characteristic that other people may have keener insight into than I do myself. So in circumstances like that, it's perfectly logical that you can tell me who I am, as Beckett wrote, or at least that my opinion on the matter of who I am doesn't necessarily trump your opinion. And this offers a possible understanding of how the narrator in The Unnameable can claim to be the eardrum, but claim not to be the mind that lies behind it any more than he is the world in front of it. And if the selfless consciousness that constitutes the tympanum is the core of a being, speaking its thoughts to us or having its wordless thoughts translated into language for us as readers, then the substance of the mind that accompanies this consciousness may well be a self with attributes stable and defined enough to be worthy of a name which may or may not be Mahud. So, a Sartrean reading of the unnameable is thus a seductive proposition, and perhaps the existentialist conception of the mind is indeed the closest relative to the implicit understanding of the mind that the novel itself offers, it, offers us. But, um, I'm in favour of pluralism as I said, and interpreting Beckett in the light of Sartre's theories obviously threatens to obscure any elements of the trilogy which are more reminiscent of other approaches to understanding consciousness, not least that big litany of other echoes that I ran through um, a few minutes ago. 
also because even the connections between the existentialist and the Beckett mind are not a, a perfect fit, there are problems. So for Sartre, intentionality, the, the aboutness of consciousness, the fact that consciousness is always consciousness of something, is like a spotlight. It's a content-free, inward or outward attention pointing towards an external object or an internal thought, memory or feeling. Beckett's existent isn't a direction. It's a membrane dividing inside from outside in a manner that phenomenology like Sartre's and Husserl's tried to avoid. They're very much more in, in, in favor of sort of blurring together the inside and the outside. And finally, as well as these idiosyncrasies of Beckett's eardrum image that, that get obscured if we try and do an existentialist reading of it, there's other parallels inherent in the same image, such as, in cognitive science, um, Antonio Damasio's division of mentality into core consciousness, extended consciousness, and the autobiographical self. Now, I'm not going to say much about cognitive science because I don't want to tread on Marco's toes, um, but um, uh, very briefly, uh, there are clear echoes. Uh, Damasio says, self, of course, is not a thing. It is a dynamic process held at some fairly stable levels during most of our waking hours, but subject to variations big and small during that period, especially at the tail ends, which is a conception that both Sartre and Beckett would agree with. And like Sartre's transcendent ego, Damasio's autobiographical self is treated like any other object of attention, he says, and it's called intermittently into being when consciousness reflects on itself, or in Damasio's way of uh, presenting it, when our extended consciousness fits our core consciousness into a broader mental arena of ideas, imagination, and thoughts of the past and future. So while the Darwinian and neurological theory of the development of mind that, that uh, this is all based on in Damasio obviously doesn't have any counterpoint in, counterpart in Sartre, um, Damasio's conception of the nature of mature human consciousness has arrived at very much the same destination as Sartre's phenomenological inquiry, and both agree with Beckett that the autobiographical self is not the core of our being, but that you can pare it away, you can pare the mind down to raw, brute awareness without any of the trappings of conventional psychology elaborated around it. So, um, I haven't really had time to do much more than sketch in a process of how one might uh, go about reading out, reading out a Beckettian theory of consciousness from the unnameable, which is, as I hope I've demonstrated, uh, a trickier undertaking um, than trying to read out a theory, a theory of mind from most psychological novels for the reasons I've been into. But this does offer an outline of how mentality in Beckett might be understood, and it also affirms the central principle um, of Sartre, of Damasio, and also present in Beckett, that our interpretation of the minds of other people can have uncomfortable parallels with the interpretation of our own self. But what I particularly wanted to say, though, uh, to, to accomplish, was to demonstrate the efficacy of pluralism as an approach to human nature in the arts that the waning power of psychoanalysis is bringing us a new freedom of interpretation to critics um, interested in the psychological novel. And I think it's one that would be a shame to close down too early uh, by replacing it with a new cognitive or Darwinian orthodoxy. Fictional minds exist in possible worlds that may or may not be congruent with the findings of neo-Darwinism and 21st century neuroscience, and may be built from a collage of many earlier sources of influence, as well as, of course, much pure authorial invention. And I think it's important that our preconceptions don't always lead us, as was so often the case uh, with Sigmund Freud in his case studies, to find exactly what we set out to look for. Thank you.
an interesting and broad-ranging talk. Um, at the moment, if there are any questions, points of clarification, you can do them now, but adapt it because it was all so clear. Um, okay, so should we just swap over? Um, I guess my talk is a good example, would be a good example of pluralism, the kind of pluralism Simon was um, calling for, because as, as an example of, with this more or less the same kind of sources, you can uh, reach different kind of conclusions. So, uh, since it's kind, of, it's kind of long talk, I like to start as soon as I can. And it's always like that, but okay. So, in his actual minds, but <laughs> convergence should be converging into the center. But so in his actual mind's possible worlds, uh, Jerome Bruner drives a wedge between science on one side and literature on the other by calling them two modes of thought. These modes uh, of thought rely on different cognitive functioning, are ruled by distinct operating principles, and, quote, the structure of a well-formed logical argument differs radically from that of a well-wrote story. End quote. Consequently, Bruner concludes, quote, effort to reduce one mode, one mode to the other or to ignore one at the expense of the other inevitably fail to capture the rich diversity of thought, end quote. Even if I endorse, endorse this, this distinction, I think it fails to accommodate cases in which literature addresses uh, issues that are also scientific objects of research. In so doing, Literature sometimes, surprisingly, ends up with descriptions that are like those that science obtained through brain imaging or philosophical reasoning. How can this overlapping occur? In evolutionary biology, the phenomenon in which two distant and apparently unrelated species show similar morphological features is defined as a parallel or convergent evol evolution. I think some something similar happens between science and literature. My paper today concentrates on a case of this convergent evolution between cognitive science and the fiction of Samuel Beckett. The problem around which this convergence arises is no less than the problem of what a self is. Do we have self as we have muscles, cells or bones? Where does the self is located? Uh, is it the self an illusion built by some cognitive process in our mind? Daniel Dennett uh, has suggested that uh, the self is nothing but a center of narrative gravity. According to this view, uh, it is the storytelling activity we are engaged with which gives us a sense of a unitary agent in the narrative of a central, central source whence stories flow. My contention is that Beckett's fiction stages a progressive trajectory toward this center of narrative gravity. Moreover, to stretch the extent to which this convergence between the scientific and the fictional treatment of this cognitive riddle, uh, Beckett, in his quest for the invisible source of subjectivity, seems also to deal with the collateral problems linked to a narrative account of self and self-consciousness. As I discuss a parallel convergence, my paper is predictably two-folded. In the first part, uh, I uh, will offer a quick overall of some cognitive theories about the self, together with addressing Dennett's narrative account. In the second part, I will show you textual evidences of this convergence in Beckett's The Unnameable by focusing 
on the narratological tools, Beckett employed both to investigate and let the reader perform this cognitive conundrum. I conclude by suggesting that in this parallel convergence, fiction might even have some explanatory and exploratory advantages over cognitive science. So, in uh, our everyday experience, the self is what Wittgenstein called in his essay Uncertainty a bedrock belief. We spend our life drifted downstream by a flow of experiences, perceptions and affections. But we never doubt that this river of experiences flows over the bedrock of our subjectivity. It is our river and, quote, the bank of that river consists partly of hard rock subject to no alteration, end quote. Cognitive science uh, has variously challenged this foundational belief. On the one hand, there are cognitive scientists such as Thomas Metzinger or Daniel Dennett supporting an eliminativist position or no-self perspective, which claims that the self is just a representational illusion. Quote, no such things as selves exist in the world, says Metzinger, nobody ever was or had a self, end quote. On the other hand, Phenomenologists such as Sean Gallagher or neuroscientists such as Antonio Damasio claim that we should rather distinguish, as Simon was saying, between different levels of self. However, either, even with such significant differences, all these approaches uh, agree that the self does not have a place within us, that there are no traces of an homunculus or an observer in our mind. Something like the little man, I don't know if you can see it, the little man in the head that Beckett, Beckett sketched in a doodle on the manuscript of the unnameable. It's like this homunculus here. Um, and still we continue to refer in our everyday life, and in, interestingly for us today also in narrative analysis, to consciousness as a point of view. Even if, as Daniel says, quote, it is not clear that there is no single point in the brain where all information funnels in. And this fact has some far from obvious consequences." End quote. Thus, the question is how do we distinguish a single individual self from the multiple information our mind processes? In other words, to quote Damasio, how does our self come to the mind? Tenet thinks narrative does the work, giving us the impression that there is a self where known. Storytelling activity, Tenet suggests, it is an evolutionary strategy we use to create, protect, and define ourselves just as spiders spin webs or beavers make dams. Quote from Dennett, our fundamental tactic of self-protection, self-control and self-definition is not spinning webs or building dams but telling stories about who we are. And just as spiders don't have to think consciously and deliberately about how to spin their webs, we, unlike professional storytellers, do not consciously and deliberately figure out what narratives to tell and how to tell them. They spin us. Our human consciousness and our narrative selfhood is their product, their product, not their source. These strings of narrative issue forth as if from a single source. Their effect on the audience is to posit a center of narrative gravity. End quote. Here, Dennett importantly stresses that we do not have to be aware of our storytelling activity and mainly. We do, not, we do not have to be conscious that we are actually building ourselves through it. We cannot access the, access the fact that our self is a representation, an abstraction, as the center of narrative gravity is for physics. See, this, this is what Thomas Metzinger uh, refers to as the auto-epistemic closure of self-knowledge. 
the representational nature of the self is not accessible through introspection due to what Metzinger, Metzinger calls a phenomenal transparency, whose degree is inversely proportional to accessibility. In other words, the more we cannot access a phenomenal state, the more it is transparent to us. The idea of a transparency of the self and of an epistemic, uh, of an epistemic, epistemic closure uh, to the center of narrative gravity, it is a necessary theoretical move to avoid two distinct kinds of problems linked to a narrative account of uh, the self, namely circularity and infinite regress. The former is a sort of narratological enigma. The story of our life, as Brunner points out, uh, um, quote, is of course a privileged but troubled narrative in the sense that it is reflexive. The narrator and the central figure in the narrative are the same. This reflexivity creates dilemmas. Uh, so every time we want to reflectively introspect what we intend when we say I in our story, we face what uh, José Bermúdez calls a vicious expl explanatory circularity which is a key aspect of the paradox of self-consciousness in Bermuda's world, because, quote, the explanandum is part of the explanans. Circularity is not the only reason to assume, assume that our sense of self is generated through an unconscious activity. If our sense of self would be something we have to be conscious of through a second reflective eye order mental state, we should assume a third order of consciousness for the second order, and so on, in an infinite regress. As Danzavi clearly sums up, quote, typically, the regress argument has been understood in the following manner. If all current mental states are conscious in the, sense of in the sense of being taken as objects by a current mental state, uh, occur a second order mental state, sorry, then these second order mental states must also, must also be, uh, be taken as uh, objects by a current third, third order mental state, and so forth, ad infinitum, end quote. Dennett, as we have seen, avoid this regress problem by saying that we do not have to be conscious of what we are doing while we are building ourselves through storytelling. The center of narrative gravity um, has no consciousness of itself. It has neither a reflective point of view uh, nor a sense of agency because it is an illusory effect of a storytelling activity. Nobody can access the center of narrative gravity that everyone is. Does this mean that we cannot speak of a self beyond words? And beyond words probably was also a title of the manuscript of the unnameable. There are different potential titles. Well, not in the habitual meaning by which we refer to the self in terms of in an individual subject with name, memories, and a biographical unified consciousness. However, beyond this complex autobiographical level, there is a minimal sense of ownership of the organism, which then it calls a biological self, and Gallagher a minimal self. However, Antonio Damasi suggests a more graduated scale of subjectivity, of levels of subjectivity, by dividing the path through which the brain constructs a full-shaped self into three distinct stages. As Simon was mentioning before, a proto-self, a core self, and an autobiographical self. So the proto-self is a, quote, Damasio, the spontaneous feeling of a living body, end quote. At this stage, there is neither a me nor an I, there is no mastering of language. Proto-self is the protagonist of our future story, who still doesn't, in Damasio's word, protagonize. Core-self, instead, arises thanks to the interaction between the proto-self and the world, 
In this interaction, Damasio says, the core self stands up, called into life by phenomenal experience. There is not yet, not yet an I here, but only a minimal sense of ownership of the here and now. As a core self, I know the experience is happening to me now, even, even if I have no idea of who I am and what I did or was in the past. The core self is a protagonist who protagonizes without knowing who he is. Last stage is the autobiographical self when memories, biography and a sense of personal coherence in the events appear. Of course, it is, uh, this last stage of, uh, it is in this last stage that storytelling about our life could begin, that the center of narrative gravity is established. After all, the, the, the narrative illusion that we are needs a material foundation. Now we are equipped to, uh, with all the concepts and problems that uh, will enable us to appreciate the extent to which the parallel convergence between, convergence between what cognitive science says and what Beckett reached through fictional investigation is starting. In my view, Beckett's narrative work could be broadly summarized as a progressive inquiry about, to quote Malloy, the laws of the mind, and more specifically into the cognitive roots of the self. It is a progression from an outside world to the inward territories of the mind. If the world of Belacqua, the protagonist of the first collection of short stories, more pricks than kick, kicks, uh, is still full of prostitutes, lovers, and sometimes friends, in Murphy, the focus and the focalization of the narration is almost equally split between a fictional London and Murphy's mind, whose chromatic description occupies an entire chapter. However, Belacqua's strange behavior already betrays what is the farther inward turn of Beckett's fiction from Mur Murphy onward. As his sometimes, sometimes friends tells to the reader, Belacqua, Belacqua's enlivened, enlivened le, the last phase of his solecism, quote, before he told the line and began relish the world with the belief that the best thing he had to do was to move constantly from place to place, end quote. Belacqua calls these in, incessant displacements moving poses, which, quote, constitutes a breakdown in the self-sufficiency, which he never weird to, of arrogating to himself, a sorry collapse of his internal armor, end quote. Belacqua moves to escape introspection, to silence or make sleepy the little man inside his mind, the self in which he doesn't believe. The solution adopted by Murphy seems quite the opposite, since he forces himself to be motionless by chaining himself with strings to the rocking chair. Murphy wants to finally relinquish the world and retire into his mind, a thing that gave him pleasure, quote, such pleasure, that pleasure is not the world, end quote. The reason of this, sorry, the reason of this inward uh, turn by Beckett's characters is well explained by Beckett in a letter that he wrote during the, his German period. In this letter, Beckett explains how he considers the title of the novel by Walter, Walter Bauer, The Necessary Journey, as relying on a wrong metaphor for a cor correct description of what the quest for the self is. Quote, journey, anyway, is a wrong figure. How can one travel to that from which one cannot move away? And here I require the, 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 the help of Ben and Emily. Does Newton think The necessary staying put is more like, like it. 
The point is, Becker says, that the noshita ipsum is no more mo mobile than the carpeta ipsum, gather thyself, of Murphy. The difference is that in the one motionless, there is the seed of motion, and in the other, not. End quote. Here Beckett is saying that self-knowledge uh, requires a different kind of journey back to the source of the illusion. illusion. We have to reach the seed of the narrative motion by swimming upstream toward the center of narrative gravity where storytelling begins. This is why, in the following novels, we never really, I would say, really leave what in Murphy is described as a mental chamber and that in Molloy and Malone dies becomes a fictionalized writing room. In the unnameable, things change, and every mental chamber disappears because the narration is located at the very center of narrative gravity. To answer the long-lasting question of what a self is, Beckett, as Hoffman points out, quote, has applied a microscope to the fungi growing abundantly on the question mark, end quote. But this is, of course, a narrative microscope made by the optical lens of narrative focalization. My contention is that in this novel, The Unnameable, Beckett has assigned a focalizing point of view straight to the center of the narrative gravity to let the reader perform all the problems linked to the narrative self-account. As Yenarber and Hala Richardson suggest, fiction, thanks to its freedom from logical constraints, make possi makes possible to experience impossible or unnatural story worlds. And this is why Beckett can investigate the ontological inexistence of the center of sorry, uh, the ontological inexistence of the center of narrative gravity by voicing this absence. And how does this, the narration of this center without place or existence can start if not by saying, where now, who now, when now, and questioning, hi, say hi, I'm believing. The reader is fictionally recentered to use Ryan's formula into an absence into a first-person narrator who denies his existence. I seems to speak, it's not I, about me, it is not about me. An identity, a thing he ironically imagines to be reproached about. Come on, make an effort at your age to have no identity, it's a scandal. Narratologically speaking, it would be tempting to uh, describe uh, this impersonal voice as what Han Banfield has called an empty deictic center. Uh, Yet this definition, Bumpy's definition, is limited to the, to the impersonal quality of a narrative voice and does not encompass the, uh, the strange case of a conscious impersonal voice. And this is the great formal solution Beckett employed to perform the problem of the self as a center of narrative gravity. He makes an empty deity center conscious of its emptiness. And first and foremost, uh, foremost, it is a consciousness of the void deictic content of the first-person pronoun he is forced to employ. The illusion of its, exi of its existence, uh, quote, it's the fault of pronouns, there is no name for me, no pronoun for me, all the troubles come from that, end quote. This trouble is the trouble of circularity, we have seen above, where the explanandum is part of the explanance. If the self is constituted by the story of which it is at the same time the author, the narrator, and the character, the only thing the self as a center of narration can say is that I'm in words, made of words, are the words. What others? The place to, the air, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, all words. As for the position, 
it occupies within the world made of words, accordingly to, accordingly to the reading I'm suggesting the unnameable voice says, I like to think I occupy the centre, but nothing is less certain. But an important question, I think, is who are the others whose words the unnameable says to be made of? I think the answer is to be found in the other cognitive issue of an infinite regress of self-consciousness. By placing the point of view of narration at the bottom of the storytelling flux, at the center of self-spinning, and by making the center a reflective pole towards its own void, Beckett has created, as Levy put, puts it, quote, a focal point of pointless, end quote. Thanks to this narrative device, the center firstly faces an explanatory, an explanatory circularity. However, the voice obsessively mentions that above its position there are endless uh, levels from which other voices constantly torment him. The unnameable apostrophes these voices as my troop of lunatics, college of tyrants, maniacs, my tormentors. Well, I claim these tyrannical voices uh, are a fictionalization of the infinite regress bound to a high-order account of the self. If the self is a center of narrative gravity, cannot affirm its existence by itself due to an explanatory circularity, there has to be something from above to testify and stabilize its, on, its ontological status. Yet another level would be needed to testify this second order and so on. To avoid the infinite regression of consciousness, this ontological cascade should end into a final master of identity behind whom, as the unnameable says, perhaps there will still be the need of a sort of a god level the master, in any case, we don't intend to make the mistake of inquiring into him. It turned out to be a mere, mere high official. We end up by needing God. Here are some examples of how the voice of the unnameable from the bottom of its inexistence, perhaps after all I'm simply in the basement, complains about this problem. I knew it. There might be a hundred of us, and still we lack the hundred and first. We always be short of me. End quote. Or in the French version, uh, a passage non, not translated in the English edition, and here apologies to Simon and Céline, Le maître, il serait ex qu'on aurait besoin d'un ex étunième. The infinite regress is perceived bottom up from the inexistent point of view of the center of narrative gravity as a descendant vociferation inflating him of a consciousness and identity it refuses to admit. It's entirely a matter of voices, no other method is appropriate. They blow me up with their voices, like a balloon. So, after having defined himself as a big talking ball, living torch, or drying sperm, the animal defines his existence as an auditory effect, speaking of himself as a pure year, whose existence is linked to the vociferation coming from the high-order regressive levels of consciousness. This is why, quote, when they go silent, I go silent. But the writing voice of the center claims that this act of creating himself as a self is a scam, easily to easy to unmask, because it is, quote, clumsily done. You can see the ventriloquist, end quote. By showing and let the reader performing circularity and infinite regress linked to the worthy quality of its existence, the unnameable is ready for his final move, which is the last point of convergence I want to suggest between cognitive theories of self and Becker's fictional investigation. In his, in, 
In his last confession, the unnameable tries to cast a glance beyond his existence, that is, beyond words. If this is impossible to do within words, it can use words and imagination to describe what kind of creature lies before and beyond, beyond him. This unthinkable ancestor of whom nothing can be said, uh, this uh, definition in the unnameable, is called War the Inexpugnable, a creature whose features are exactly those of the proto-self described by Damage. Quote, War, to say he does not know what he is, what is happening, is to underestimate him. What does not know is that there is anything to know. His senses tell him nothing, nothing about himself, nothing about the rest, and this distinction is beyond him. Feeling nothing, knowing nothing, he exists, nevertheless." End quote. Worm is the real protagonist who still does not protagonize, let alone the mastery of language. He is the self before a sense of selfness, and beyond and before the narrative illusion that will bring him into what we think as the proper life of a proper self, a narrative identity. There is no more time to show you here are the proof of this, the impressive convergent evolution between Becker's fiction and cognitive science. Circularity and infinite regress and different levels of self are unperceived problems beyond this, the sense beyond the sense of unity that we receive from the narrative we tell about our life. By devising textual mechanism able to let us, let us perform our inconsistency, Beckett, as Porter Abbott points out, has found a device which, quote, allows him to generate direct experience of news from the interior, our own interior. Put simply, he gives us ex experiential knowledge of our ignorance about who we are, end quote. As I said, my conclusion is that in this parallel evolution, literature has an explanatory and exploratory advantage over science because it can make us perform cognitive issues as an experience. Thank you. I think, I think 
there, there was a fashion in criticism uh, in the mid-century century when Saussure uh, is flavor of monks, mm -hmm. um, where everything takes a linguistic turn and suddenly yeah. everything is about language. Yeah. And I think that envelops Beckett mm -hmm. along with everything else at the time. Mm -hmm. And so there are elements of the Elaine and the rest of the trilogy that, that do are conducive to that feeling, mm -hmm. like Beckett says, there's nothing here but words, I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just the words. Um, and so um, there have been these uh, these Saussurean readings of, um, uh, of of Beckett as just an exploration of how you can construct things out of words and how you, how you can construct this this sort of um, this appearance of a self in language with actually nothing behind the language. So I, I'm certainly not moving that out, but I do think that. The, the excitement about linguistic constructs in that period led people to neglect the, the, the idea, well, neglect the fact that there's a lot more going on in, in Beckett. And that, uh, it, it does seem to be a consciousness exploring the nature of its existence. And uh, if, if you were to weigh those two readings against each other, I would have thought that it would be much more compelling to see it as, as consciousness, discussing consciousness rather than words discussing words. Okay, well, I certainly hope so. Um, before like, we hear the markers, there's just one further question then. So why, if you were doing something which was consciousness about trying to discover yourself, why would it have to happen through language if you're taking models of how consciousness arises kind of through activity, through involvement in the world, and then language kind of scaffolded on top of that? So the fact so theory reading would be language comes first and everything. If there's no off text and we're stuck in like that. So if you're trying to pick back from that, then and you're saying that this text is going to be about more than just the Saussurean language. How, why does it, is it then just a Saussurean misreading to say, to see it as too all centered on language? Can the text just gesture beyond, beyond this language? Well, I, one of the brightest I, I am working on in my current project is Natalie Saholt, who's, uh, who writes novels about the non-linguistic. Um, and her, her basic idea is that uh, there is a level of the self, there is a, a core level of the self, a more important level of the self, which is below the level of language uh, and below even levels of things that you can put labels on. And she wants to talk about that, she wants to express it, but she wants to do it in a book, so she's going to do it through language. And what she's saying is that I'm putting these words in place of the, the non-linguistic things they're standing for, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to use them to evoke parallel feelings in the reader so that you can and whether how far you could you could extend that to Beckett, that perhaps not all of the language in Beckett is meant to be linguistic activity, but perhaps it's standing for linguistic activity. I'm not sure what Okay, so that come back to your initial stuff about how we've got at least three selves involved since we've got an author, we've got a reader, we've got a text, and there's something about that that meeting which might then be as good language. Yes, so it's a rendering of language. Extended to all, all the cognitive approaches to literature when they use fictional text mm -hmm. to sustain that there is a theory mind in sense or uh, in the characters. Or, so the equation, the analogical equation about real world and fictional world is problematic, but I think it, it's also challenging but uh, possible. But uh, I, I would probably distinguish cognitive problems in which language is involved. So talking about the, narr the narrative self account is just one account of self. Um, is today is not the, the more uh, probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's been countered a lot with very good argument. But uh, clearly, I would say probably what in 
since what I was suggesting is that uh, which we, we, we should also probably define what we mean about la by language because sometimes there is the equation language equals thoughts or vice versa uh, but it, it's clearly not true so uh, not all the way of thinking is verbal but there are also different kind of verbal thoughts for example inner speech is different from uh, or condensed inner speech is different from extended inner speech so uh, probably we say that Whenever language is involved, like in narrative kind of cells, because it's about stories, but uh, even the narrative kind of cells starts with very, like, embryonal, liminal kind of narrative, which could be casted in inner speech instead of proper linguistic uh, form. But there are other cases in which you can, I think, use back at all fiction to, to even when language is not specifically there, but you can suggest uh, that there is language and emotion and feelings and perception and uh, but I, I would say probably the good question is how you can use or suggest that fiction through language can also investigate non-linguistic uh, states of phenomenon. Uh, I think that's that's a good question. But it's just a comment to add on to that. I, I thought that uh, in, in modernist representations of consciousness, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a whole deal of narrativizing at the same time with Eliot and Beckett and Wolf and Joyce and so on and so forth. Uh, there's, a, there's a deep preoccupation of the unsaid and the unsayable, that which cannot be narrativized, for example, with the embodiment and so on and so forth, which draws attention to the things that cannot be narrativized, the unseen and the hidden. So, I think, you know, going back to your point that, that in the 20th century there is there is a parallel allusion to, we'll continue alluding to the the the, the non-verbal aspects of these arguments that constitute yourself. Yes. Sorry. I was going to say Madre Duval is as the person that springs to mind uh, in French literature from that comment and uh, uh, there seems to be a correlation in Duval between um, the non-linguistic and the central, the things that are most important, the extreme experiences, the, the depths of, of psychology are the ones which get down beyond language. And so the, her, her novels sort of, they are this, these sort of floods of verbiage, but they're kind of circling around what she really wants to express, which is the thing that they can't, you can only sort of gesture to the world. And the, the, we're basically in this soft world where you either have Moriac and everything is fits together in a lovely, lovely way, or you have these, this, the, the terrifying mass of the root. And isn't that, so if I'm behind Geron, I think, well, the world is disclosed through my practices. I never meet raw root, except I, unless I occasionally have kind of breakdown experiences like poor old Hoffman and Mosey. But basically, I don't encounter the world in that way. I encounter, through, I encounter through, my, through my kind of purposive coping with the world. So um, I'd be kind of worried if, if I mean, both of you are saying, from Beckett, that, okay, so what this, what this novel is doing is using language to gesture towards the outside of language. And then we're still stuck in this world where there's this, where it could be an Indian real, or it could be Christopher's Cora, or there's this thing beyond language we can't get to. And it seems to me that, do we have to get stuck with that division? Can't our human activity always be doing language and the other stuff simultaneously, so we don't have to always kind of be peeking behind the mirror to see what's really there? So I guess is that, maybe, maybe Beckett is in that generation where you do think you have to peek behind the mirror. Um, but do you see what I mean? So it seems like, if it, what, what you're saying and what, what is that there, We've got the modernist moment where everyone's worried about the unsayable. Is that just the modernist moment, or is it a real problem? Sorry, no, James is waiting in queue. Uh, well, I was just going to say that, that um, it's not an answer to your question at all, because I think, I think, I think 
it is that is the, the aporia that we're that we're left with in Becky. Yeah. I think yeah. that really is that he's saying that, that there are things uh, beyond language that you can, you can kind of invoke through language, but that that's not exactly what it is. But um, to bring it back to the cognitive science, um, and particularly to Marco's view, one of the interesting things that's coming out here is a decoupling of narrative and language. That just mm -hmm. because they're saying the core of ourself is a narrative self. Um, doesn't mean to say the core of ourselves is a linguistic self. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of done away with it, the language. But you seem to be saying that, in fact, you can narrativize worm even though worm is unnarrativized worm. That's not why Beckett is clever. I think there are many other reasons, but uh, no, probably not. But uh, I, I, I think you, you're right, and I, 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 I always have uh, any, any time giving the, giving the impression of getting stuck in the dichotomy of language versus non-language mm -hmm. or the negate, negation of language I mean, a lot of secondary sources have already gone in that, that direction I think what, what is interesting in Beckett is that if we want to focus on language is the impossibility to stop uh, even when trying to, uh, to reach the, the moment I, I think it's an interesting about liminalities and limbos in which you He's really empathizing also in a very many, many passages with the need uh, to tell story, which means also the need to create and reproductive meaning and horror for reproduction. And all. So it's not just about language, it's about all the disclosure in Heideggerian example is a disclosure of words. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea is so quick to start a world uh, and, and so hard to go back to the previous stage. Yeah, so that's then worrying that there is, that you've started a world and then you've lost it because it's not your world, it's their world and they're speaking it. So that, that's back with this sense that there could be a pristine experience which was before you got worlded, which I would be worrying about. But sorry, James, what are you going to do? Thank for two um, very fascinating talks. Um, what struck me particularly about both of your respective positions is that they exemplify kind of two ways in which literary studies gets conducted. And I'd be interested in kind of problematizing both of them, seeing perhaps if you could kind of you know respond to it. And I think Simon, in your case, what you kind of advocated was a cautious pluralism, where we didn't fall for a particular paradigm, we kind of suspended in midair and kind of inhabited the balance of speech. And what I kind of ask you in that case is, at what point does that pluralism slide into just kind of lackadaisical relativism, where anything goes? Because it seems to me that that's something that we're kind of becoming conscious of trying to come out of, perhaps now. And as a result, I mean, how would you kind of, where would you draw the line that you think the line can be drawn that would kind of mark that transition into a kind of, you know, kind of a kind of melange of kind of competing opinions of which any one of which is as valid as the other. And um, I think in Marco's case, you kind of took a different kind of position and you volunteered a very kind of straightforward, not straightforward, but a very um, kind of, you know, basically it was a hypothesis which you suggested you can track through Beckett's tests and kind of, you know, assess in terms of literary plausibility and so on. And I wonder, in your case, what would you count as something that would falsify that hypothesis? In the sense, you're making a concrete claim about Beckett's fiction, you're constructing a model, and you're kind of volunteering the model as kind of, you know, this is what Beckett's fiction is about, this is what Beckett is doing. Could you see yourself encountering any evidence that would make you change your mind about that, or that would give us kind of a remit for changing your mind about it? So I just kind of want to put those two kind of opposing Point that you perhaps. Okay, uh, well, yeah, I stand up strongly against lapidaceal relativism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in favor of that. Um, I think what I was, what I'm proposing is. Is uh, anyone in the room? <laughs> 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 um, 
it's not such a freefall as a kind of a kind of reversal of the polarity, really, a reading out rather than reading in. Um, so it's not the suggestion that um, we should just uh, create some kind of mashup of all the different possible attempts uh, to understand mind and then try and sort of impose that on a text, but that we should start from the text. Um, and I'm not saying this is what everyone should do, but I think this is an approach which should, which form, should form part of, of what literary criticism is about. That um, rather than um, uh, looking for things that confirm our pre-existing hypothesis about how minds work in the real world, um, we should uh, acknowledge that what we've got is a fictional mind in a possible world, and then explore the particular um, idiosyncrasies of that mind that's being created, and see if there is a consistent, coherent, um, implied theory within that text. And once you've got that, then you start to look and see how far the thing you've got in front of you is a Freudian mind, or a cognitivist mind, or a Bergsonian mind. So uh, I'm just suggesting that there is really a place of pluralism, and there's a place for reading out rather than reading in. Um, and that having emerged from the long nightmare of, of psychoanalytic orthodoxy, where it was important to see everything in, in terms of you know, wanting to kill your father and have sex with your mother. Um, it's quite important that we don't, we don't slide into doing something similar with cognitive science and evolutionary psychology. So can I just I think got to follow up with that? So once you've done your cultural history of the mind, and you've got your different models, I just, then, what, then what? So we have, we, you, you charted your history of the version models of the mind in the 20th century, and then we're just saying, oh, well, that's how it went. Or do you say, this happens because they kind of struggle with the terms of the changing mind, or do you say, actually, the one in the middle is right? Or um, well, uh, you can you can certainly say which of them are right compared to current understanding of mind, and that's very interesting. That that's not particularly the point of my uh, of what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is uh, demonstrate that there is um, uh, there are a plethora of different minds. That when people start talking about psychological models and trying to and trying to, to interpret them, very often what they're doing is they're starting with an understanding of both what the important parts of a mind are, what a mind is, and how a mind works. And in fact, when you look at these texts, very often you'll see that there's no agreement on any of those three things. Um, and so, really, all I'm trying to do is to, is to bring out stuff that has been obscured and demonstrate a diversity in the understanding of minds, in the, um, the opinion of, of what exactly a mind is and how exactly a mind works, and show that there isn't something we can and controversially called a mind in literature. So it's basically saying, let's just get the stuff on the table. We're not anywhere near the point where we can say they're what. Okay, that makes sense. Because it's yes, too exactly. much work. And also, I don't really see the huge point in saying that somebody who describes psychology in the 15th century has got it wrong according to you know latest understandings of the mind. I think it's much more interesting to see what he thought was right. Look, was your question follow up to Simon, um, or is it good? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I guess it's just the same issue, really. Um, Seems to me at some point some question of some question of epistemological rigor has to come into it, and you're you're basically just saying that um, current cognitive science is is the same as Freud, and we mustn't get trapped in the grid of like applying that to, to literature. The difference is, you know, good cognitive science today is based on experiments that actually have ways of finding stuff out that Freud didn't Yeah, I mean, I'm, yes, I, absolutely. I've, I've been a bit of, of a sweeping there, <laughs> and certainly, I think if anything is going to replace um, the, the that's why you're not and that is a very good thing to do it. I think I have two problems um, with the use of, of, uh, of cognitive science and evolutionary psychology. Um, I think they each have 
um, great strengths, but they also have a flaw. And I think the flaw in cognitive science is that it does very, very well at um, talking about the typical, the general, and the universal, which means it does a brilliant job of talking about the reader or the creative process. I think at the moment, it struggles to say how um, the narrator of Proust's novel, his love for Albertine, is different for, from anybody's love from, for anyone, yeah, to talk about the individual and the specific. Um, and the, the, the advantage that it's got in scientific rigor and having a backup that we can believe it's true, even if it's still a bit of a blood instrument, is what at the moment evolutionary psychology is a bit lacking. That I know that, that your, your hard cognitive scientists often have quite a, a skeptical attitude to evolutionary psychology as being, you know, a, sort of a, just so stories based on stuff which they don't quite really understand what's true. So, um, I, I use computer science a lot, and yes, maybe in my, my peak of pluralism, I was more negative about it than I actually am in my practice. Uh, but I do think there are those two issues that um, that cognitive science is, is better at the general learners of the, the individual, and evolutionary uh, psychology is much better at that, that kind of uh, that kind of individual stuff. But it doesn't quite have the same epistemological reactor. So you backed off the cruise a little bit. So you're going to back off the <laughs> uh, From your experimental point of view, since I know that you are forced to say, okay, these hypotheses have been proved, or uh, we have to restart from scratch. Well, I think it's, it's very, uh, mm, just very quickly, I think, at least in Beckett, but I, I think more or less probably this would be my approach in every, every author. What I'm suggesting is this. In Beckett, for example, I think it's kind of undeniable that he was interested in uh, uh, cognition. Mm -hmm. This is the only, when I mean cognition, I mean specific, specific kinds of cognitive processes. Mm -hmm. Some are experiential, so more phenomenological, other more like foundational, epistemological. Uh, but I mean, I think that overall the kind of interest he has in the nature of the mind is kind of undeniable. So I, I wouldn't classify that as a sort of uh, intentional uh, biographical claim uh, relying on the author. So given this, then I, I, what I think is that whenever I say Beckett, you, was the great idea of Beckett, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm start, uh, my, I think that the only way to put it is to suggest that uh, fiction in itself, literature and fiction in particular, I think for specific reason, uh, could be a modeling, modeling activity. Like when you model, so you are creating abstract uh, models to understand relationships, structure, functioning, and distance, proportion, measure, all the kind of stuff. Clearly, for, in, for different kind of problems. So I think that you can't counter, you can't say, you know, Becker's model of the mind was wrong. Mm -hmm. You could, in a way, try to evaluate uh, what that kind of model was able to explain in a way, but the ex Planetary part is one thing, and then there is the experiential part that is completely lacking from cognitive science. I mean, you can read about even not just about unconscious processes or neural neural processes, also about conscious processes. Sometimes cognitive science is really getting stuck into metaphorical description or like dance, for example. So it's like having the the model of the solar system and being also able to navigate the model of the solar system as you were planet. So that's. That I think, in my view, is about fictional modeling the, it, as, as a way, proper ways, distinguished way for investigating cognition. And sometimes that can be that can be convergence. But I mean, 
that tracing back also to other kind of philosopher or uh, you can be the kind of scholar tracing direct influences mm -hmm. or suggesting that you know this is what fiction achieved mm -hmm. as kind of cognitive science achieved in the 60s compared to what cognitive science is achieving today so I think I don't know if I answered your question no, no I agree I mean I, I don't ask the question polemically I think you're perfectly correct um, what the, the kind of slight kind of proviso I, I make is that you give a reading of a text and you say this reading is consistent with this particular claim and then perhaps as critics we can say okay it's consistent to a high degree the probability of being consistent as opposed to positing a causation and I think it's just a question of being just a bit more careful perhaps about making claims as opposed to not making claims because you do tend to have in literary studies an addiction to that grand sweeping statement that says, you know, this is the epitome of that, or, you know, that kind of rhetorical flourish that allows, you know, looks good on paper, but it might necessarily contain a high degree of kind of correlation of truth and so on. So it's just a question, I think, of us being sometimes a bit more careful in how we phrase what our readings are doing, as opposed to kind of just putting them in kind of a blanket propositional claim, perhaps. Yeah, otherwise you can end up saying, like, Beckett was a neuroscientist, yeah, that kind of stuff. No, no, I, I think it's completely like, for me the interest is like to say, okay, these are, is what is cognitive science is saying and the kind of models cognitive science is using. But if you do, let, let's move from Beckett's choice and you think about what cognitive science today is investing, the way in cognitive science, uh, in which cognitive science today is modeling in a speech, for example, and making experiments, experiments, then you go back to Joyce and it seems like clearly, can, okay, 70 years ago, Joyce was doing, or 80 years ago, Joyce was doing more or less. Uh, was already suggesting this and transforming this problem of inner speech out of the form of internal language uh, and transforming that into a kind of experience. So you cannot say that Joyce was already there because clearly the kind of, it's not just a matching or mismatching. It's more to say fiction as, as, as its own history of cognition, I would say, probably, or way of investigating cognition. Mm -hmm. And you can use cognitive science to say, okay, since today, this is kind of acquired knowledge. We can go back to fiction and say something similar, because clearly structures are and relationships uh, could be almost the same. But then, if you go into detail, you can make a different kind of. But I think you can say more because uh, you seem to be saying so. The boring model would be here's the Masseau, he's true, and look, Beckett is doing it. So Demasio is showing what the truth of Beckett is, and you seem to be saying more. You said Demasio is talking about something we can't represent. But in, in the unnameable, we get some experience of that, which is kind of beyond definitely, experience. This is and then the next stage would be, therefore, if you want to test it, you've got to find some readers and see what happens in their brains yeah. when they're reading better, and if they get some, so you've got a whole new, a whole new experiment, which is quite interesting. About it. Can yeah. you watch people? And the friction is clearly, to, yeah. sorry for, 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 the friction is clearly to, well, in the unnameable, having an experience something you normally don't have access to, so clearly you feel in the reading experience this kind of, this, this, this kind of friction between your, Mutual or uh, potential uh, degree of access. Um, um, there's another question there, but Mark wants to catch his train. Yeah. So I think oh, we'll come back for more later. So we're not going to. First of all, we've got to say thank you to Mark and Tom. If you can, if you've got time, stay for a drink and we can carry on. But you can also, I mean, let's just see what happens. It's kind of an experimental model because we broke at the wrong time. But, um, the drinks are there, and we will be here discussing if you want to discuss.